everyone. It's Brian and Tom, another Your Amigos podcast. This is the 2020 Prostate Cancer Year in Review. And we're joined by my friend and colleague, uh, Chuck Ryan. Chuck, I'm going to have you introduce yourself. And much like the three wise men brought gifts, you're going to bring us three prostate cancer year in review gifts, uh, whatever you think the highlights are of this past year you, so that we can are you discuss. Suggesting that, that, are you suggesting that Chuck's as wise as one of those wise men? Is that why we've invited him onto this podcast? Uh, he is wise. He is. Well, we'll find out, I guess, over the next 20 minutes. Okay. May I speak? Anyway, Tom, stop interrupting. <laughs> Chuck, uh, introduce yourself. Uh, uh, give us gift number one. I will bring some myrrh, uh, for sure. Um, so, uh, <laughs> thanks for having I don't me. even know what myrrh is. Yes, well, you'll know at the end of this podcast. Um, <laughs> so, um, my name is Chuck Ryan. I am the BJ Kennedy Chair in Clinical Medical Oncology uh, at the University of Minnesota in Minneapolis, where I'm also the Director of the Division of Hematology, Oncology, and Transplantation. And I guess, I hope everybody knows I'm a medical oncologist. They do now? Yeah. All right, what's gift number one? So I, so I think that the gift number one for, for, for 2020 would be that we have two new drugs approved in a new class, and those are the PARP inhibitors, uh, Olaparib and the Rucaparib were both approved this year. Uh, and they were approved on the basis of uh, two studies uh, that, well, yeah, basically two studies. One with Olaparib uh, that was done in the, uh, in the setting of patients with a whole series of uh, DNA repair alterations. And we should talk a little bit about what DNA repair alterations really matter in prostate cancer. But that was a study called the Profound Study. Uh, and uh, what the Profound Study did is it basically randomized uh, patients to uh, Olaparib uh, versus uh, a, a second AR targeted therapy. Uh, and they had to be patients who, who had mutations in, uh, I should say, uh, who had uh, pathogenic mutations in BRCA1, BRCA2, a whole series of other ones, ATM, CDK12, CHECK2, RAD51B, and, and there's a little bit of a longer list. But anyway, um, uh, that study led to uh, improvements in radiographic progression-free survival and uh, overall survival and, uh, and really became, so now, a, a, new, a new therapy available for patients with prostate cancer. Rucaparib is, is, a, is a different drug uh, made by a different company, Clovis Oncology, and the importance of that approval uh, is actually, um, even though the study is smaller and the scope of the drug's use may be a little bit narrower at this time, it, it, has a, it represents something else. So, so Rucaparib was approved for patients who have uh, BRCA1 and BRCA2 alterations and who have already received docetaxel chemotherapy. But I think the key point about the Rucaparib approval was, was based on this study called Triton 2, in which uh, response proportion was used as sort of the primary endpoint. Uh, and this was uh, patients uh, who uh, had measurable disease, essentially, uh, and one of these mutations. And that's the first time we've had a drug approved in prostate cancer based on a response proportion uh, that, uh, that I know of, uh, certainly in CRPC. And so that opens up a new... Uh, set of doorways, really, for us to think about whether that validates response as an endpoint, and we can talk about that, uh, and um, and where we go from there. But I've got two questions yeah, for you. Go ahead. Number one, um, the biomarker. Mm -hmm. Some people tell me that you have to, it's BRCA1 and BRCA2 that's driving it from tumor-based biomarkers, mm -hmm. so you take a tumor sample, you test it for BRCA1, BRCA2 mutations, and those are the two powerful drivers, and all of the others are passengers, and a laparib biomarker program has got some clunky bits in it. Yeah. Um, 
is is that is that yours t- taking it, or have I got this completely wrong? No, it's not completely wrong, and I think clunky Unusual. bits is, is uh, probably not the choice of words I would have used, but clunky it, bits. It, it, it actually fits. And here's the reason: um, in 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 this list of mutations, there are some that, much to our surprise, really uh, didn't appear to benefit from the use of a PARP inhibitor. And one that stands out is ATM. And ATM are actually fairly common mutations. If you look at the uh, distribution of uh, pathogenic mutations in patients' germline uh, pathogenic mutations, 13% are ATM. So it's not, it's not mm-hmm. that rare. Um, and, um, and these were included in the Triton 2 study, or sorry, they're included in the Triton 3 study, which is phase 3 that's underway, but also included in, in many of the, uh, in the profound study. And those patients, as we look so- at them, didn't really appear to benefit from the PARP inhibitors. So check questions. So how are you using these drugs in clinical practice? And by that, I mean, how do you choose which to use? When do you use it? Mm-hmm. And, and when are you sending genomic testing in general on, sure. on uh, advanced yeah. patients? Are we still tracking the gifts? I don't know what number I'm on. It, this is still, this gift, is still one. gift one. Gift. It's been like it's big three gift. minutes. And I think I felt like I'm on gift three. Hey, uh, Chuck, it's our podcast. We'll run the okay. time. All right. Yeah. <laughs> it's good. It is a good point, actually. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> yeah. how about I'll just, I'll just make a little ringing noise when I get to the next gift. Um, yeah, you, it sounds good. <laughs> so I don't think we have any data really to support one drug over the other. Olaparib, though, mm-hmm. has a broader approval because they got approved on the profound study, which was Olaparib versus Physician's Choice. Uh, and it was sort of agnostic around prior chemotherapy and, again, included this longer list. Rucaparib, much narrower. Patients had to have prior docetaxel therapy, uh, and it's only BRCA1 and BRCA2. So we don't have any comparison data, obviously, uh, much like uh, many of the other, you know, cancers we treat, we, we may never have that. And we may not need to expend clinical trial resources doing those types of studies. Sure. So there's really not, it's, a, it's honestly, um, I would say for the BRCA1 and BRCA2 post-chemo patient, uh, you have two choices, but you're on label with Rucaparib for the pre-chemotherapy patient with the longer list. Uh, you can use so Rucaparib. When- when are you testing and when are you using Right. So, so both of these drugs, importantly, are approved for metastatic castration-resistant prostate cancer. Now, if you look at the guidelines for testing, uh, they're, they're expanding. And uh, almost any patient who shows up with metastatic disease, even in the castration-sensitive setting, uh, is somebody who could be a candidate for testing. Um, and I would urge listeners to look at the NCCN guidelines and other guidelines for, for testing because there's a series of permutations on when you can test. But what I do now is if somebody shows up with untreated metastatic disease, I'm probably going to test early because uh, it's guideline driven. Um, or if they are somebody who I'm inheriting or who's been on ADT for a long time, when they get to the point of CRPC. Um, because all, both of the approvals, perf- the Olaparib and the Rucaparib approvals, both came in patients who had received prior novel hormonal agents. So our default path in CRPC is still to go with abiraterone or enzalutamide, et cetera. Uh, and then after that, uh, we, would, we would want to integrate the PARP inhibitor. Chuck, the net is wider for Olaparib because the biomarker is more, is a wider biomarker. Mm-hmm. Are you... Are, are you are you cross-matching different biomarkers? So if it's BRCA1, BRCA2, you're giving uh, Rucaparib, whereas Olaparib, if, it, if it's the, the broader, or, or you're picking one or the other, one has a survival advantage, one's right. based off response. Right. Um, and how are you choosing between the two drugs? Are you just picking 
I, I don't think it's, I don't think we really can do that at this point. I think that individual clinics and hospitals will probably, you know, have their one that they, that they choose. Uh, and the, re- the recapitory one, will that need to have a survival advantage? Is it a provisional approval that requires? Yeah. So there's a, there's a study called Triton three, which is a phase right, okay. three study and full disclosure. I'm one of the lead investigators on that study. Um, and that is a study that's looking very similar to profound in terms of it being a, a randomization it's for patients who have had a prior novel hormonal therapy um, who are randomized to physician's choice uh, or rucaparib. And there's RPFS is the primary endpoint. But of course, those patients will be followed for survival. As well. We're going to move on. Mm-hmm. Um, can you name a second? Can you name one of the three kings? That, do you know one? Do you know the names? Uh, <laughs> each of these three questions, you're going to have to come up with the facts about the three kings before you introduce the topic. Well, they, is this Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego? No, I don't think it is. The only one, I know one. That's why I asked the question. Uh, <laughs> it's named after a bottle of champagne, and it's called a Balthazar, which oh, I think Balthazar, is a 50-bottle right. bottle of champagne. I think he's one of the – he must be the wisest of the wise men having a bottle <laughs> of champagne named after him, I would imagine. Um, um, Chuck, what you got for your second offering? Uh, oh, man, I thought I was doing really well with those. Uh, I, I was just not prepared, <laughs> and I thought I mean, you would lose count. Um, so, But I think the, the other point is just about the PARP inhibitors I want to I wanna make it is – is now we should be doing genomic testing, right? And we shouldn't do yeah. genomic testing on, I'm just looking for a binary, does this patient have a BRCA2 mutation, right? We should be, we should be thinking a little bit more genomically as a field. And I realize that, that not every practicing uh, oncologist or urologist is doing that in the area of prostate cancer yet. But when you do a genomic test and you get a genomic panel and you get data back, even if the data says this patient does not have a DNA repair alteration and therefore would not be a candidate for a PARP inhibitor, when you get a genomic test back that says RB1 deletion, TP53 alteration, P10 loss, et cetera, et cetera, you know you're dealing with a genomically more complex disease. And I think that that's, this is the first year where we're beginning to kind of see the field sort of think through that as opposed to being a real niche kind of thing that was happening in academic studies. So, so that's cool, and I think that's really interesting to watch that move forward. And that gets me to the next uh, point, I think. Which oh, is- finally. Is this the next gift? Yeah. Uh, so so right. the next point would be, uh, I think we're going to see some traction with regards to P10 loss, another genomic uh, uh, situation where uh, patients, uh, uh, where we know this is a common uh, driver of uh, CRPC and prostate cancer morbidity. Uh, and we do have a drug, ipatacertib, uh, which uh, you know, revealed some data now in a randomized phase three study called the Ipotential 150. Um, and that was a study where abiraterone and ipatacertib were combined and compared to placebo uh, plus abiraterone. And it's a little, um, Tom, what was the word you used before? Uh, clunky. Clunky. It's a little clunky. Clunky bits. There are some, there are, clunky I bits. would say there are even more clunky bits around ipatacertib. Uh, because of the way that we are determining P10 loss, uh, whether it's through immunohistochemistry or through genomics, et cetera. But it's, again, uh, a targeted therapy coming in, looking specifically at a genomic driver. And I think that that's a key point. So, Chuck, the trial achieved PFS. It didn't hit that the OSM point. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the biomarker, as you say, the biomarker piece was pretty inconsistent. Mm-hmm. And what I mean by that is the phase the two biomarker was different from the phase three and had you mm-hmm. one used a different biomarker the results would have been slightly better um do you think that um the, is that a practice changing trial or is it a proof of principle trial 
it's more the latter, right? It's not, it hasn't, I think we're going to find out more. We're going to need a little bit more data on this point. Uh, but I think that it's, it's a, another brick in the wall of, uh, you know, us building up the edifice of genomic testing and driving. Wow. Yeah, Good thanks, analogy. That's a, that's a Powell's like <laughs> Pink Floyd <laughs> analogy. I love it. Yeah. So, um, um, no, I mean, it's another piece in the puzzle. Sorry. Brick in the wall towards, uh, brick in the wall. Uh, towards us, you know, building up prostate and, cancer as something that where genomics matter. And why was it combined with Abby? Was there biologic rationale or was it just sort of clinical? It, you, mostly you know, a clinical mostly combination. Clinical combination, I think, because it was, yeah. a, you know, I think that uh, uh, the Prevail study and the Cougar 302 study got us away from using placebos at all in CRPC, right? Sure. So. Um, Chuck, I've got, um, and I've been, I've just found myself, I wasn't listening to your last answer too much because I was actually <laughs> focusing on the, uh, on a fact <laughs> mix website about the three wise men. Mm -hmm. Um, apparently they didn't ride camels, which, uh, was, uh, they were riding horses rather than camels, mm -hmm. but I'm not sure how true that is. Um, we're going to move on to number three. I'm not sure why you're mentioning it. We don't it, know who one, the three but... wise men were, but we're pretty sure it wasn't Brian, Tom, and Chuck. We can... <laughs> <laughs> I think that's very fair. That's very fair. That's safe. Um, that's safe. Um, Chuck, what's your number three? Well, I think that, um, uh, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to cheat a little bit here and talk about lutetium. Uh, and the reason it's not quite, uh, there is that we don't have, definitive data on lutetium that says this now is the standard of care but the march towards it is pretty convincing and i'm hoping that we can when you talk to when you invite me back for the 2021 um <laughs> uh you know uh, summary we'll hopefully be talking christmas special right, we'll be yeah. talking about the uh the use of psma targeting uh so lutetium 177 uh, uh psma targeted lutetium 177 uh, has been uh, studied in a number of different uh, scenarios. And a lot of the data we're seeing is coming out of this great center in Melbourne. Uh, and uh, they've been doing a ton of work on this point. Um, and this, there's a study called the Vision Study, which is the approval study in the U.S. It's fully accrued. We actually expected to hear uh, data on it uh, this year, but, but are not going to. But uh, we may do that in 2021. That's a study of the lutetium, uh, six treatments of the lutetium in patients versus best supportive care in patients who have already had a novel androgen access therapy and chemotherapy. But the response proportions are, are very high uh, to lutetium and, um, uh, and are looking very, very good. And so I'm hopeful that this will be something that will become integrated around. And Chuck, this is a, just to clarify, it's a PSMA-based radionucleotide. Right. right, it's a PSMA-based radionucleotide with lutetium. Uh, we have previously had, um, you know, other radio, radio uh, pharmaceuticals that were not PSMA-targeted, uh, samarium, strontium, et cetera, going way back, and, yeah, and yeah. radium. But, um, but this is really a small molecule uh, radio, radio ligand delivery system. Uh, and they had a study that came out this year called uh, Propel, uh, I'm sorry, not Propel. Uh, I'm blanking on the name right now. But it was it was lutetium versus chemotherapy. And it looked better than chemotherapy, yeah. but key to that was that the endpoint was PS, PSA-based. So PSMA therapy is really PSA, you know, to use PSA as an out readout of a PSMA-targeted therapy may not be quite, may not, may not be the yeah. real thing, right? I think we did a podcast with the first author, didn't we, Tom? Wasn't we that did. an ASCO or Mike Hoffman? Yeah. We did. Yeah. Um, so just on that issue, where does this fit in this relatively complex pathway now? Where would where would uh, where would lutetium find itself? 
so what's going to happen is it, you know, if all things go as according to plan, Letitia would probably enter the clinic in the U S in the post chemotherapy, post Abby Enza setting. Right. Um, but I think that what we're going to see is that it's going to be pretty well tolerated. And so, you know, it may drift earlier in the disease course, whether it does that based on uh, evidence and, and further subsequent prospective studies or just by practice, we will see. I would also say uh, that uh, the other issue is that, uh, you know, the response proportion is not 100%. It's about 50% or so of patients benefited. So it, 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 uh, it may, may be one of those situations where it looks better earlier, right earlier in the disease continuum. So we'll see. And Chuck, Chuck, I'm gonna you go. I'm gonna ask for a fourth gift. Yeah. So there's like. Um, oh. oh, I was gonna suggest one, but go ahead. <laughs> well, so <laughs> I was, uh, you know, I, I should definitely mention the uh, the uh, studies that came out this year with um, the cabozantinib and uh, tizolizumab, uh, drugs that you know yeah. in your in your world of kidney cancer and bladder cancer, respectively, obviously. Uh, and, and there's some very impressive data that came out uh, that was, you know, a relatively small study uh, that um, uh, that showed a modestly high response proportion to this combination of Cabo and Atizo. I think it's 35 to 40 percent or so. And the reason I bring it up is that it, you know, Cabo itself has been extensively studied going back for a long time and associated with pretty small response proportions. Atizo as a monotherapy in uh, prostate cancer or checkpoint inhibitors as monotherapy in prostate cancer have not been particularly impressive. So there's something maybe going on with that combination, and that's going to move forward, and that's something to watch. The uh, question there, just for for me, so atezolizumab has a ratio when you when you did a tezo versus a tezo plus, uh, excuse me, Enza versus Enza plus atezolizumab came in with a hazard ratio which is slightly above one. It didn't look great. So atezo doesn't look to be spectacularly active. And Cabo also from negative trials. You're combining two drugs from negative studies and hoping that they're going to get over the line. You're going to have the additional toxicity. That would be a really unusual approach because we normally, you know, when we pick lots of active drugs and we get them together, we often don't get that additive effect. We get some dumbing down. If you don't get synergy between these, because if, obviously if there's dumbing down between two negatives, it's going to be really negative. So you're actually <laughs> looking for something kind of synergistic between these two, Chuck. Wouldn't, is that right? Yeah, so I think the answer to that is that what, we're, what we think we may be doing is, uh, is driving, this, is a, this may be a tumor microenvironment targeted therapy. Um, and it may be that the cabozantinib has uh, effects on the tumor microenvironment that allow the atezolizumab or allow the T cells that are present. Uh, but it's kind of the way I, the way I think about it is they're sort of present but inactive and blocked. Because when Cabo started, it was an axle sort of mess inhibitor, and then it became a VEGF inhibitor, yeah. and now it's a microenvironment. Well, <laughs> at one point, it was an immune therapy, and now it's a microenvironment therapy. So, so a two microenvironment therapy. So we, I mean, I... I, I I'm I'm being a bit facetious. It's Christmas, and so I'm allowed to say that. I think, um, but um, but I think the post, the point there is I, is that I think we need to proceed with caution with these data, yeah. um, and the assumption that because they work really well in kidney cancer, it's going to be fine in in uh, in prostate cancer too, because the atezolizumab data didn't look great. And the single agent cabo data wasn't that great. I don't know. I'm just yeah. And I had the same question. I think it'd be interesting if it's positive. I think it is. Are there other examples in oncology where two drugs with minimal single agent activity have gotten over the line as a combo? 
uh, no, it's a fair point, and I, I'm I'm saying that yeah. it's something to keep an eye on uh, because you know. So the fourth gift might not be as good as some of the earlier ones. Well, you asked for three, <laughs> and you got a fourth. I'm one. joking. I look at this. I have. You know, uh, I hope that program successful. You know and by the way, my year. my predictions are always yeah. wrong, so it's it's yeah. going to be the that's, most positive trial in prospect. That is true. Well, you know, Probably. You know, so that's true. When your mom says, you know, oh, I have one other gift I forgot to give you, and it's either something I'm, really special or it's like a pair of socks, right? So, <laughs> this is a pair of socks. Right? Yeah. I have one last one last topic I want to cover uh-huh. while we have your expertise. You mentioned PSMA therapeutics, mm-hmm. but obviously PSMA based imaging mm-hmm. is sort of taking over. So maybe just give us your your quick summary of where it is, where it's going, and, and how it's going to be integrated into clinical practice. Yeah. So you know, it's a big question. Yeah, it's a big. It's a good question, uh, and it's uh, see Tom, another good it's, question. It's probably gift three point. I'm going to just call this gift three point one. Um, because <laughs> I think, I think what, what the lutetium imaging is going to do is, uh, it's, it's going to have, it's going to be both a blessing and a curse in a way. So the blessing is that we'll get this, these beautiful images of where disease is, uh, allowing us to, uh, allowing urologists and radiation oncologists potentially to enhance their ability to drive focal therapies, which could be really great for people with early stage mm-hmm. disease. And I think if you, if you had a, if you had a urologist here and you asked them that question, you know, you would say that this may alter their node dissections and things like that. So mm-hmm. that's really, really important. Uh, and, and so as this technology uh, emerges and, and gets opened at various sites across the country, you will see the urologists using it more and more. And that's good. And the radiation oncologists. For the medical oncologist, it, it creates this issue of um, it's a little bit like the uh, Will Rogers phenomenon in a way. Uh, insofar as, you know, we haven't talked about the non-metastatic CRPC space where we have these drugs, darolutamide, enzalutamide, and apalutamide all approved in that space. And that's probably gift 2.9, to be honest with you, because um, those studies matured this year, uh, all of them, that, mm-hmm. and showed us that treating non-metastatic CRPC with AR-directed therapies actually improves survival, okay? So it's another sort of... Um, uh, you know, uh, key uh, opportunity for us to, to see that early, early therapy uh, is better than deferred therapy. And we've been kind of proven that for 15 years, frankly. But, um, but anyway, so the point with that, with those drugs is they were approved in the, or at least apalutamide and darolutamide were approved in the non-metastatic CRPC space, which is actually kind of a small space. It's typically people who have locally advanced disease or people that are a radical prostatectomy and start ADT uh, for rising PSA mm-hmm. and, uh, and then develop CRPC. But a very interesting uh, analysis looked at these patients who were going on the Spartan study, which was with apalutamide, uh, and did PSMA PETs on them. And uh, uh, virtually all of them had metastatic disease or had evident disease, mm-hmm. I should say, on, um, on the PSMA PET scans. And all of them were eligible for this trial that required that they have non-metastatic disease. So that non-metastatic disease state is going to shrink uh, because these patients have metastatic disease, right? And, and yeah. we just didn't have the imaging you tools just didn't, before. You, yeah. So, yeah. so the question is, you know, and this is the dilemma we have, which is when we talk to a patient about their prognosis or we, or we look at the available therapies that are at, and how they got approved, we're still stuck in using the old technology. But when we want a really mm-hmm. refined way of telling a patient where his disease is or, um, or uh, uh, you know, other, other factors, we should be using those, those new imaging techniques. 
So the question is, how are they going to are they going to be proven in such a way that we uh, that we definitively need to use them, or are we just going to use them because they are nice to use? And when and the key linker between those two is that when if lutetium one seventy seven and similar PSMA targeted therapies become available, their use will be tagged to PSMA imaging, and that will that will probably mm -hmm. close that. Chuck, this has been pure gold. Awesome little pun at the yeah we really. We got, we got, a I think lot we of got gifts. like six or seven yeah. gifts. There was a 2.9 in there. Um, Chuck, thank one. you very much for your time. Uh, it's always fantastic to talk to you. And I hope you're going to see you soon. Have a lovely Christmas. And uh... thank you, you too. And do you have the name? Oh, I did. But I did. <laughs> give me a second. Give me a second. I, 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 <laughs> give me a second. Somewhere. <laughs> I'm trying to think about where us. I came up with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. No, it wasn't song. those three. It wasn't that three. I've got these myths here. That's no, the, the that, tragedy. Balthazar, yeah, definitely. Balthazar was one, but I, the other two, I've lost the other two, Chuck. That's really disappointing. Listen, okay. I'll text you. Tune Chuck, into the I'll next podcast. I'll text you. The three. <laughs> okay. All right. Thank you both. Uh, Thanks, Chuck. Appreciate uh, it. Have a great uh, winter season, Christmas season, and holiday season, and new year. And we will uh, I'd like talk that, again. Yeah. I'll see you soon. Bye-bye. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not close. I just realized. <laughs> <laughs>